On June 22, 1986, Argentina faced England in the quarterfinals of the FIFA World Cup. On the surface, it sort of looked like any other match between pretty well-matched teams, but the actual tension of this game came not necessarily from the soccer, but from the history between the two teams. Four years before, the Falklands War had ended. It was a conflict between Argentina and England. England had won and had taken back the Falkland Islands from Argentina. And so Argentina sort of came into this match trying to take back on the soccer field what they had lost on the battlefield. It was sort of a soccer superpower versus military superpower sort of situation. The first half, nobody scored. The score was zero to zero and tensions were high running into the second half. Six minutes into the second half, Diego Maradona, who's now considered to be one of the greatest soccer players ever to grace the field, made one of the most legendary and controversial shots in World Cup history. Let's watch that shot together. Six now. minutes into the second half, major controversy. Maradona went on another run, beating Hoddle and playing a 1-2 with Valdano. But Hodge got there first. Maradona challenged Shilton and punched the ball into the net. The English players screamed for handball. Everyone had seen the infringement, except Tunisian referee Benakua. I mean, I don't know much about soccer, but I know you're not supposed to punch the ball into the net with your hand. Despite being only five foot eight to the goalkeeper six foot one, he jumped and punched it. He landed knowing what he had done and he yelled to his teammates, it's audible in some versions of this, come and hug me to celebrate or the referee isn't going to allow it. <laughs> his teammates saw it. The English players saw it. The only person that didn't see it was the referee that was supposed to call him on it. In a press conference afterwards, he was asked about this goal and he said it was scored partly with the head of Maradona and partly with the hand of God. <laughs> was it the hand of God? We don't know. What we do know is that that isn't right. And yet Argentina won that game by one point advanced to the next round, got through that round, and won the World Cup because of a cheating player and a referee who wouldn't call him on it. What do you do when something wrong happens in front of you and the very person that's supposed to prevent it stands idly by? I think that might be where we are in Matthew chapter 11. The text tells us that John the Baptist is in prison and he catches wind of the things that Jesus is doing among the people. And when he does, he sends his disciples to Jesus with the question. He says, are you the one to come, the Messiah, the promised one, the one that we've been waiting for forever, or should we expect somebody else? And I read this and I'm like, what in the world is happening, right? John the Baptist is Jesus's cousin. He's been raised in a family that's pretty well acquainted with the promise of God to Mary. He's grown up believing that Jesus, in fact, was exactly the person that would fulfill the prophecies of Israel. He lives, actually, John the Baptist lives in the desert, sort of as a way of reminding the Israelites that just as when they wandered in the desert, waiting for the promised land, that there still are yet promises that God will fulfill, but hasn't yet. He says consistently throughout his ministry that there's 
a kingdom that's going to come and a person that's going to bring it. And he's very clear about the fact that he's not the person that's going to bring it, but that there's someone coming behind him who will. And then Jesus shows up to be baptized. And John says, I baptize with water, but there's someone coming behind me who will baptize with fire, who will not just preach a baptism of repentance as I do, but who will actually cleanse the impurities, who will take away the injustice, who will finally balance the scales so that where the people of God are crushed now, they'll be able to bear up under the burden because the Messiah will lift it. And then Jesus comes to be baptized and the father seems to confirm what John hints at. The clouds open. He says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. A little dove comes down, representing the spirit. It seems like a pretty neat theology that John delivers and a pretty neat confirmation, pretty clean, that God delivers in the baptism of Jesus. And yet eight short chapters later, John is in prison and doubts whether they came all at once or whether they were deposited as sand on the seashore, wave after wave, asked this question of Jesus, essentially after having affirmed and believed and prepared the way for Jesus to function as the Messiah, sees what Jesus is up to and he finds him lacking. And so he sends the disciples to Jesus with a question, essentially the question, it, it's, are you the one to come? What's under that is, is this all you got? I mean, is this it? The Pharisees are self-righteous bigots and they're still in power. The Sadducees have sold their religious convictions out to gain seats of privilege. And there they sit. The Romans tax us through the nose through people in our own neighborhoods who have been willing to betray their own family for a buck. And there they are, reaping the wealth. And people like me, John says, people who are willing to affirm that you are the faithful Messiah are either rotting in prison, facing the lash, or hiding in their homes for fear of the religious leaders. Getting saved wasn't supposed to be this difficult. Is this really part of the program? Are you the one? Or should we expect somebody else? Are you the one or have I spent my whole life being taken for a ride? What do you do when the person that was supposed to stop the suffering knows it's not right, sees it's not right, acknowledges that it's not right, and yet stands by and seems to do absolutely nothing. I have a feeling a lot of us know the answer to that question because either we have been there or we are there now. We have expectations of how God will act. Maybe we've gotten those from churches we've been a part of or from reading scripture and interpreting it ourselves. We have expectations of things that if God is active, he'll take away from our life. And yet we've prayed and we've prayed and we've prayed. And the very things that to our knowledge seem to be according to the mission of God to remove from our life remain. We've had an estranged relationship 
with a family member, you've had a strange relationship with a family member for years and you keep praying that God will soften hearts and help reconciliation to happen. But when the family reunion comes around, you can barely look that person in the eye and they avoid you altogether. You're a little grateful for it, but frustrated that God seems to do nothing. Someone who, who's way too young, has a disease that's way too serious and you've heard God heals and you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed and asked God to take it away and yet they're still just as sick as they were. The prognosis is getting worse. There's someone in your company who discriminates consistently, racially, and you've prayed for years. You've talked to their supervisor. You've prayed for years that, the, that God will eventually bring them to justice. They've been promoted twice and your career still stagnates. You have family members that have been hurt by the church and for years and you've prayed, God, would you just bring them back to you? Even if they can't go to church right away, would you break into their lives and remind them that even when church seems not real, you are, and then maybe use the church to heal some of their preconceptions. And yet they're still far away thinking that church is a sham. You used to believe the things that you heard in church yourself. You've come for years wondering if you're the only one who used to believe the things that we affirm when we sing and when we pray, when we hear the creeds and you've asked God to somehow show up, but you show up and you feel like an imposter in the pew because even as we sing softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, you're wondering why he hasn't rung your number up in a while. These are the things at least I've grown up thinking that if God were active in our lives, he's all about taking away. And what makes it harder sometimes is that people try to answer these scenarios with advice that could fit on a bumper sticker or a Hallmark card. They say things like God's good or God answers prayer and you know those things are true or at least you want to. But part of you wonders if the reason that people are saying these things is just so that they can put some psychological distance between themselves and your problem because your problem reminds them that they too are vulnerable to the suffering that you're going through. And you wonder if they're just saying these things so they don't have to draw close enough to feel your pain because it feels like you've been praying, asking God for years to give you bread and he keeps giving you a stone. So you ask with the psalmist, how long, O Lord? And you ask with John the Baptist, are you the one or should I expect somebody else? Jesus' answer to John is almost, I think, as mystifying as John's question in chapter 11 of Matthew, verses four to six, Jesus says to John's disciples, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble. The text literally reads, blessed is anyone who is not scandalized on account of me. Jesus is actually quoting here from the passage we just heard from Isaiah chapter 35, which says, then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstop. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The sand that you wander in will become a pool. The thirsty ground bubbling springs and the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. John's familiar with this passage. 
He's learned it in Sunday school, but he notices maybe that Jesus leaves out the part that John was looking for in his evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. The two verses before the ones we just read say this, be strong, don't fear, your God will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come and save you. Jesus leaves this part about vengeance and retribution out, it seems, because he is the Messiah, but he's not who John thought he was. John thought Jesus was coming to clean house, to put things order, in order for the people of God, and yet Jesus is there and wicked things still happen. Evil people still succeed. The vindication and the justice and the setting things right that John expected doesn't come in the time that John thought it would because the judgment that John expected Jesus to give is in fact the one that Jesus received. John keeps thinking that Jesus has come to finally say no, to be the no of God. Enough is enough. And yet as a friend of mine says, all of God's no falls on Jesus, so all of his yes can fall on us. Instead of driving out the people and the injustices John thought he would drive out, Jesus lays his life down so that the way of holiness that Isaiah talked about could be made possible even for the wicked and the self-righteous and the sellouts. And yet there were then and are now things in the world that grieve God's heart that he doesn't make right until the end of time when after having given even the wicked, even the self-righteous, even the sellouts, a way to be made new. I wonder what John thought when he receives Jesus' words, because the injustice doesn't stop and the sellout still prospered, and yet Jesus says to John what would seem to me at least to be a pretty unsatisfactory answer. Instead of saying, yeah, I'm the guy, or no, keep waiting, he says, the blind see, the lame walk, and the deaf hear. And John, I know it's not what you expected, but you'll have to name that as enough. In the middle of the injustice, I am still now opening a way of holiness that will redeem even those people and situations that you wish were judged. You just may not get to see it in your lifetime. I imagine many of us are probably sitting in the tension that John sat in. Something, there's something in our life that we just know is not right. We know it's not right that people around us see it and know it's not right. Even the people that aren't even rooting for us see it and know it's not right. And we've prayed about it, we've asked God to do something about it, but the weight feels even more crushing than before. So we sit in church and wonder if the God that's been promised us, the God who heals, the God who cleanses, the God who is just and good is the one we pray to you. Are you the one we've been expecting? we say, should we wait for somebody else? I think the word of God for us this morning is found maybe in Jesus' way of fulfilling the prophecy that John remembered. He says, the blind regain their sight, the lame walk, the sick are healed, the lepers are cleansed, and the way of holiness is open for us to walk on. Even when God doesn't take away everything that's wrong, he makes possible everything that is right. The people who follow Jesus then don't always get out of suffering. John the Baptist himself dies just a few chapters later, spoiler alert, at the hands of an unjust ruler. Jesus doesn't cause the suffering, but even in the suffering, Jesus is present, opening a way 
of holiness so we can walk after him. So I think the invitation of God for us this morning is the same as the one that Jesus gave to John's disciples to lament injustice, to know that things are not yet right, and yet to in the middle of suffering walk in the way. I think that means that when someone who has wronged you, who has bad-mouthed you all over town, who has frustrated you and fooled your attempts, faces a loss in their family, you show up with a hot meal and an encouraging word. I think that means when, even when your prayers for healing aren't answered, you pray for healing for others and do your best to celebrate when it happens. I think that means that when your boss was promoted above you unfairly, you choose to work hard regardless of recognition, even if it makes that person look good, God forbid. I think this means that you keep showing up in the places that God shows up, even if you leave unsure if you've met him. I think Maybe above all else, that this means instead of giving God a measuring stick for how he should show up into your life to make you to believe, you can see the things that are happening in your life, even if they are meager, that God is doing. And say with John's disciples, that'll have to be enough. And so that's how we're going to end this morning, actually, is to name those ways in which God feels distant and then to name the ways that he has shown up and say though they might not be what we have hoped, though they might be smaller than we wished, they're enough. I think there are a lot of people in this room who are probably going through something pretty challenging and have prayed and processed and felt disappointed and done so sort of by yourself over the past season. And so if that's you, we're going to actually open the altars during these questions we're going to consider. And if you just want people to pray around you and to lift you up in in this moment, in the suffering, in the middle of it, praying that God will open the way, even if it's not the one you expect, the altars are going to be open for that. But we're going to ask just a couple questions. I'm going to ask you to sit for a few moments and consider them. The first question is, where has God in your life disappointed you recently? Maybe you haven't been honest about this yet. Maybe you haven't been open about it yet, but there's probably something at some point in your life that you've asked God for and you think, man, the mission of God seems very much for taking this thing away and yet it remains. Where has God most disappointed you recently? The second question is, what is God doing that you need to name as enough? It may be meager. It may not be what you've prayed for for years but maybe with John the Baptist, you can say, it's not what I hoped for. He's not the one I expected, but yet it'll have to be enough. And then the third and final question is how might you walk in the way that Jesus has opened right now? What is the invitation of God that's stirring in your heart this morning? Maybe it's to be honest with the people that are around you and lament and pound your fist into God's chest with the people that can listen for his voice in your life with him. Maybe it's to go to counseling and process through some of these things in your heart, or maybe it's to forgive someone, even if you don't tell them that's wrong to you for a while and set both that person and yourself free, whatever it is. 
this time is yours to consider it and to respond to the invitation of God. If you'd like help and support in doing that, the altars will be open and we'll pray.